Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back to uh, Second Hour of Amplify. Our guest this evening is uh, Dr. Samantha Miller. Title of the book is Chris Systems Devil. Talking tonight about the devil. Um, don't usually tell another faith and imagination story uh, in the second hour, but uh, this is one that I, I tell every year at this particular time. It is said that when Jesus was returning to the heavens after his death, the evil one met him on the way and asked rhetorically and mockingly, What good was your faith, O Son of God? You have been beaten like an animal and crucified like a criminal. Your blood and your mother's tears have fallen upon the earth and dried. Your mother's heart was broken. Your disciples are hiding in fear. And many of those you taught, healed and forgiven, were among those who screamed for your death. What mountains has your faith moved, O Son of God? Jesus neither stopped nor looked his way, but said loud enough for the evil one to hear, My brother, and I call you brother, because you too were created by my Father. When you were sent to eternal darkness, the kingdom you have prepared for those you have chosen to follow you, you will have no mother to cry for you, no angels to sing of your glory, no one to cherish your memory in their hearts. Even now, even now, the name of your kingdom is used as a curse. Bask then in your darkness, for the light will reveal you for who you truly are. Faith's victories are not always immediate, but they are always everlasting. You move the mountains. My Father prefers that I move people's hearts, for that is the true miracle of faith, a story of faith and imagination. Um, tell us a little bit about um, how Chrysostom uses the story of Job as a, as a teaching tool. Yeah, Job is his primary example of how to suffer well. Job is the story of a man who is afflict the devil asks for permission to afflict him god says 
he will never abandon me. He is my righteous servant. And the devil says, yeah, just wait, just wait and let me afflict him with everything. And I bet when he's suffering, he will, he will walk away from faith and walk away from God. And of course, the story is that Job does not. Even his wife says to, to curse God and die from all the suffering. And Job refuses. He stays faithful. And so Chrysostom points to him as the story of, look, you suffering happens to everyone. And even the worst suffering, Job did not curse God and die. He did not abandon God or abandon his faith and didn't give in to that temptation. He is the, the paradigmatic righteous sufferer. And Chrysostom wants us to emulate Job like that. So Job comes up over and over and over in his discussions of virtue and suffering and demons. And he makes the point that his suffering was not evil, but it was a test, and that suffering can lead us to good, even to virtue, and in that sense is not evil. Right, right. He, that's that's the, the primary distinction Chrysostom wants to make. His congregation seems to think that all suffering is evil, and Chrysostom wants to say it's not actually evil, it's, it can be a test. It's not always a test for him, but it can be a test. And God often uses, uses the suffering as some sort of pedagogical tool, some way of, of helping us to increase our virtue or drawing us closer to God, drawing us to repentance or to, to the life that God would have us live, to, to strengthen that virtue and live that heavenly life on earth. And Job is his example of, of that in particular. Uh, so God hasn't caused the evil. Uh, those things listed as true evil are sins, and their origin is in the person who commits them. It's the result of human choice, and that's been our theme uh, throughout the program. But curiously enough, he believes that the devil allows humans the opportunity to be virtuous. And in that sense, he believes uh, demons can be helpful. Yes. Yeah. And it's not so much that demons allow in the sense that demons are choosing to allow. Like Demons don't have a choice in the matter. But demons are the occasion on which, like if, if we choose to use demons properly, he says, like Job did, you can sort of use them as a stepping stone. You can turn what they're intending to your own good. So the idea is, again, a sort of um, athletic metaphor. How do, how do boxers get stronger muscles, but they use a punching bag, something that, that's heavy? So every time a human resists or a Christian resists uh, a temptation or a deception of the devil— she sort of grows that virtue muscle stronger. So the more the devil tries to tempt, the more he's really just giving you possibilities and opportunities to resist and grow your virtue stronger. Why in is mind, in Chrysostom's yeah. understanding? Why does Chrysostom accuse the devil of being lazy? It seems like he might accuse him of something much worse than that. But maybe it's only because he warns his people. He uses it as a teaching device and warns his people against uh, becoming lazy. I think that's primarily it. I think the, the time he calls the devil lazy, it's usually when he's saying, look, that was why the devil fell. He was lazy against yeah. his own 
uh, he didn't exercise his own choice well. He chose the easy route. He was prideful or he was envious or whatever it is, and that caused his fall. But that's usually just when he's it's, – it's a homiletical tool more than anything when he's trying to tell his people not to be lazy. Because that's the big thing that he hits on with his congregation is to say, look, don't be lazy. When you're lazy, you fall into temptation. You need constant vigilance to recognize things, your thoughts or um, this thing in front of you as a temptation that you should resist or, or even just constant vigilance to recognize where the deception is. Cause he's going to say, he's going to make sin look really attractive. It's not right. that harmful to go to the racetrack instead of going to worship on Sunday, Sunday morning, it's way more fun. So you just go do that. But Christensen would say, if you're being lazy, you're not going to recognize that's the temptation. You need to actually work at virtue. And uh, he claims that the devil not only fell out of heaven, but was also thrown into hell. Do we know what he means by hell? I don't really know what he means by that. It's, it's, it's unclear. He doesn't go into very much detail. His, the place where he, he harps on this a lot is when he's, he uses Matthew 25, where um, the parable of the sheep and Jesus separating the sheep and the goats at the end of all things. And he's talking about the devil being thrown into hell, that lake of fire there, which is sort of a revelation reference also, but he mostly uses it with this parable of the sheep and the goats. And we don't have a good sense of what he means by that. It's not developed in the way that we get once we get to the middle ages. If the devil was listening to this program, and I'm suggesting that he is, um, how would he defend himself against what we've been talking about? Oh, that's a great question. How would the devil defend himself? The devil would, my guess is, start making all kinds of excuses. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is no defense from our, our on our understanding of it. But I think he would just make a bunch of excuses. Like this is the devil would actually probably try to tell you it's not his fault, right? He right. was created this way, or or someone made you know. <laughs> And he would, you know, he's not envious. It's God's fault for me for treating humans special. He was supposed to be special or something. Not really sure. And we have reason to believe that he was uh, very intelligent uh, mm-hmm. as an angel, as an archangel, unless he lost some of that. And, um, well, let's, let's, that just sort of popped in my mind. So, because um, there's people, if I open, used to open up the lines and, uh, people would have different points of view. I wonder what his point of view would be different. He probably would, would blame us, really, that we're the ones oh, yeah. who have turned against the Heavenly Father. We've done what is what is really wrong, and he's really been trying to do good. And I guess if there were people, there's people out there who follow Lucifer. There's satanic religions, for example, satanic religion, and they probably could answer that question for him to us. If that, mm-hmm. if that were the case, you know, what is it that is so attractive by that? Um, so to believe that evil then is equal to God, if we believe that Lucifer was equal to God, would that not be blasphemy that no evil in the world is beyond God's power? Right. It would be blasphemy to... In this- Theologically incorrect. I think we, the church has decided it's heresy to believe that evil or, and or the devil are equal to God. The whole point is that God is the creator of everything. And church tradition has said 
no, God did not create evil. Evil is actually just an absence of good. It's not a thing. It's not a substance of itself. The devil is a being in in church tradition. Um, And so God created that being, and therefore God is greater and more powerful, and therefore the devil has limits in the way that all created things have limits. What are some of the ways um, in which he believed that um, the demons interacted with human beings? You know, I mean, what are some of their primary activities by which they attempt uh, to, they, they, they try to, to uh, tempt us and lead us to doing what is wrong, which is, and, you know, lead us into sin, really? Yeah, the, their whole goal is to keep us from salvation, and the way that they do that, criticism says their primary tools are temptation and deception. Um, I like to talk about it as, like, the devil is going to dress sin up in a tuxedo and make it dance. He's going he's gonna to make it as attractive as humanly possible, or as devilly possible, but he, he, the, the devil's going to make this attractive. And Chrysostom is really not specific. He talks about the devil's wiles and the devil's pomps and the devil's stratagems and tricks and all of those things, but he never actually just comes out and says what they are. There are places where he'll talk about the devil will try to tempt you to go do something instead of worship on Sunday, or will tempt you to curse God in the midst of your suffering, suffering to stop trusting God. But it's always this sense of almost putting a thought in the mind. He doesn't say it that way, but that's sort of the sense you get, that the devil's putting these thoughts in your mind, these, oh, I could do this instead, or I could take it that way. Or deception in terms of, his example for deception tends to be Adam and Eve, and that they shouldn't have believed the devil or the snake, who for Chrysostom is is being is somehow the devil's mouthpiece in this, or they believed mm-hmm. words that were contrary to what God had told them. When the snake says, yeah, you eat from the tree, that's fine. And God had said, don't eat from the tree. That is just believing the wrong things, believing, believing the lies that are out. And um, yeah, those are, those are his primary tools. Mm-hmm. You write about deception uh, again in your book, Chrysostom's Devil, Deception is the tool the devil uses to bring about temptations. He will not present a sin as the ugly thing it is, but will put it in a tuxedo and make it dance so that it is enticing, seductive, and desirable to a person, even distracting enough so that she will not realize it is a sin until it is too late. So it's seems to say then that it's, it's the little things, too, that can turn us away from God. We can think of the major sins, but the little things uh, relating to the practice of virtue and how virtue then can, can take us to God or lack of virtue, let us fall from God. So the little things uh, can cause us the most trouble and pain. Am I wrong? No, that's absolutely right. That's that's, I think, probably the the temptation and deception more than anything. When we think about it, like, most of us, murder's not really a temptation most of the time. We're pretty, that one's pretty obvious, we're pretty aware of it, and the opportunities and the the, the sort of circumstances don't, don't really arise for that. 
But the possibility of eating too much chocolate cake and being gluttonous super common and and we don't think of it as sin in the same way or in this current time fearing our neighbors such that we start hoarding supplies yes when we when we go to the grocery or we hoard supplies that maybe medical establishments need or whatever that would be that also that's in Christmas world, that would be about almsgiving, taking care of the less fortunate and the poor and, and whatnot. And that's, those are ways that much more subtle ways that we're just not, he would say, vigilant enough to be aware that this is the devil trying to get us to live contrary to the way we were intended to live when we were created. And um, he, Chrysostom, believed in denom- demonic possession, didn't he? But it, even yeah. though it was one of his infrequent topics, you write, mm-hmm. is it occurs only when when a person allows that to happen. It's it's unclear. Okay. It seems like that is that's the case. I think for him, but it's it's unclear. Complete. He's not. He's yeah. It seems like that's what he's saying a lot of the time, and he really usually only deals with it when it comes up, when he's preaching on gospel narratives where Christ is taking care of demons, exercising demons and demon possessions in the gospels, it's usually where it comes up. And then there are a couple moments where he'll actually point out in his congregation, there there are demoniacs, there are demon-possessed people in the congregation, and they'll say, you need to have pity on them because they are not in control of themselves right now. They're not morally responsible. But yeah, he does does say they allowed it to happen but I don't think that's the only way he thinks it happens, just based on a couple other comments. So, uh, as human beings, then, we do possess powers in this, this struggle against him, uh, and they are the virtues or the powers. What are specifically some of those virtues that are the powers that enable us uh, to face evil and walk away from it? Well, the particular one for him is... is it's we have this faculty of choice. So it's this Greek word called the proiresis, and it's this this capacity that God created all humans with that that may, that is free that cannot be compelled by anyone or anything. So not only can demons not compel it, but God chooses not to compel it and leaves us free to choose all of our way in the world. And that's the part he says, you need just to remember that you're free, that God made us self-determining. And so when you're faced with these temptations, remember that, that you don't have to give in to them, that you can spit at the devil, that you can mm. stand tall, or you can try and put the devil in a headlock, and you can win because you are created to be free, and in particular, and then part of the narrative is, of course, Christ has redeemed us and redeemed that faculty as well, which had been damaged by the fall, and it, but now has been restored, and we can still choose good. We can still mm-hmm. choose all the virtues, all the ways that we're supposed to be. So that's his power that he wants you to remember, is that you, as a human being, have this ability to choose and this freedom, and you are not enslaved to those temptations. And getting back then to the concept of virtue, because you speak about it, of course, throughout the book, because it's uh, one of the most important points, you write, Chrysostom understands it is living the way God calls a person to live. 
or more simply, virtue is obedience to God, living in accordance with God's will. The Stoics believe, quote-unquote, the will of God to be the order of nature, the way the world works. Therefore, living in harmony with this natural order is virtuous living. Stoics do not believe in a personal God who commands or makes specific requests of humans. Chrysostom does. For Chrysostom, virtue is not about agreeing with God and living in harmony with the natural order, but about obeying God and living the way God intends humans to live. Chrysostom preaches evil is nothing other than the disobedience of God. It seems so simple uh, there, and yet it's, it's so profound that uh, living the way God wants us to live, uh, being obedient uh, to God in, in accordance with, with, uh, with God's will. And then he preaches that evil is nothing other than the disobedience of God. We all know about disobedience because we find, we find occasions for it in our life in one way or another. So we're going to uh, take our final break, and we come back. We'll continue our discussion with Samantha Miller about her book, Chrysostom's Devil. Welcome back to uh, the final segment of Amplify. We have just about... Uh, 21 uh, minutes till the end of the program, and I'm looking at what um, I want to do during those last uh, 20 some minutes. And I'm, and Samantha, I'm looking at the book. There's so much still about virtue in the book, and uh, so many things that can be read. Seeing things properly makes virtue easier because the choice is clear. One way Chrysostom often encourages virtue is by discussing demons. He tells his congregants that they are more powerful than demons and should not allow themselves to be taken in by any diabolic tricks, but should resist and in the struggle strengthen their virtue. And a little bit later you write, Virtue is what makes a person worthy of the kingdom at the final judgment. God judges us on our virtue and decides whether we are worthy, though we are not alone in our endeavor to be virtuous. Christ helps us, but the responsibility lies finally with that. And that responsibility, isn't it, that we have to make a fundamental choice between the devil and Christ, isn't it? Yes. And, and not a one-time choice, but an over and over and over again choice. Every time there's a temptation, we've got to make that choice. How does he make a dis a um, how does he distinguish between good and evil? Chrysostom. He just most of the time he seems to assume we all know what it is, actually, but it basically comes down to good is anything that God intended for us when God created us and for the world when God created the world, and or or anything that God would would intend for us now, that that is what, how God would define good is good. Evil is the opposite of that or the, 
I think the absence of that, although that's more Augustinian language than Chrysostom. But evil would be anything that goes against God's intention for the world. And, it, and as you just alluded to, he, he believes that humans were created with knowledge of good and evil. You know, to what extent? I mean, uh, do we just forget if we're created with it? What happens to us? Well, what happened to it was um, the fall, Adam and Eve. Basically, he blames it all on Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. that we were created with knowledge of good and evil, that Adam and Eve had it. In fact, he goes so far as to say Adam, God lets Adam name the animals, and it's like a matching game, and Adam gets them all right, which proves his wisdom, which is just a fascinating—I want to do a little bit more research on that, because I don't know any other patristic source who, who thinks of it like that. But— um, but then when Adam and Eve eat the fruit they weren't supposed to eat from, which is really a matter of disobedience to God, the, the faculties were, were messed up, and humans are no longer have proper vision and no longer have complete understanding of good and evil. They've actually never lost it completely. It just got a lot harder to figure out. And then Christ restores that faculty and that ability to know good and evil again. And uh, contrary to what some people might believe today, and maybe they were be- believing it then, and that's why he was teaching that he he uh, didn't believe that the body is inherently evil. He did not believe that the body was evil, actually. Um, Chrysostom says the body is neutral, which is really important. And he goes into that in particular because he wants to say that the nature is not, because he wants to put evil, evil is a moral category, and he wants it to be that humans are responsible for it. And so if the body or if human nature, like what we just are as humans, is evil, then we're not actually responsible for any evil that we do. We're only responsible if we've chosen it. And so he wants to say, no, the body's not evil, actually. It's just neutral. It's just a thing that we have. And it's part of us, and, and he doesn't treat it as well as we might like today, as many people would treat it today, but, but it isn't evil. It's just neutral. In fact, he says that uh, nothing is evil by nature because God created everything good, and God then didn't create humans wicked by nature. Right. God creates everything good, including the devil was not evil by nature. And that's, this is, this whole part of this is because we can't, there can be no responsibility without freedom of choice. And so if we didn't choose it, if anything was evil by nature, or if anything was good by nature, then we're not able to be punished or rewarded for that because we, and we were not responsible for either of it. We're not responsible for our own vice or virtue. If it was just part of our nature, we're just, we can't help it. And he wants to take away that excuse and say, no, it's, you absolutely can help it, and it is absolutely your choice. I was going to ask you a question, but it's already answered in my mind that he believes that he's already in hell, right? So um, with free will, um, the devil doesn't have a chance of turning back to God again and saying, uh, I did wrong, I repent of all the harm I caused. Right. Right, yeah, he, Origen is the only one from the ancient world who wanted to go as far as to say that even the devil could be redeemed, and 
that was one of the major points when when the church said he is the hair we just can't go that far the church mm-hmm. says you, you can't go that far and so yeah the devil is is already in hell and the devil is is unredeemable although Christendom doesn't really give any attention to that per se why is Christendom fond of battle imagery i really don't know i i wonder Part of it is, I think, because it was the where it comes out most often is in the instructions to the people about to be baptized, and I think it's probably partly this tradition of seeing. Part of it is the the tradition of seeing the ascetics, the the monks, the people out living in the desert as athletes for God, and and so it's. it's sort of a combination of battle and athletic imagery. It's not just one or the other. And I, I think he's drawing on the aesthetic tradition from that. I, I, think, I think that's probably the main place, but it's not really clear where he gets it from. And mm-hmm. for, those, for the, the instructions for those about to be baptized, it's this trying to, almost trying to pump them up. Like, this is what you're getting into. You need to know what you're getting into. It's a real thing. It's a serious thing this is what's going to happen. And one of the natural images for that is battle. Um, the other one he uses in those most often is actually marriage. It's a very different sort of image mm-hmm. on that one. I find it curious when you talked about uh, his sermons are full of exhortations to uh, sp- uh, specific virtuous acts. Uh, for example, you write, reading the Bible, being chaste, and his favorite, giving alms and caring for the poor. That sounds uh, pretty good on that side. But then against specific sins, for example, frequenting the theaters and horse races, especially in place of attending worship. Seems like it's a real a lack of balance there. I would expect the, the sinful side to be stronger somehow and not to be frequenting the theaters. Or was there a great deal of harm going on there that I'm not aware of? It was the, the, the frequenting the theater thing is actually a theme through a lot of patristic, a lot of ancient Christian writing, like Tertullian. You're doing it as early as Tertullian in the second century. And it's partly a way of being countercultural. Augustine goes off on it quite a bit too. And Augustine's reasoning is, Christendom doesn't tell us why it's not a good thing, except that people are going to that instead of going to worship, which is why he's so frustrated. One of the things Augustine gets more into it in terms of it's uh, arousing emotion and it's fake and it's sort of disconnecting us from reality. Um, Tertullian's is more about the counterculturalness and it's too much in the pagan world and you're absorbing the pagan worldview and cultural assumptions and, and those sorts of things. And so it's actually an ancient Christian trope that that going to the theater was more about sort of being stirred up by the things of the world, being stirred up by these false emotions that people are trying to trying to get you to have instead mm-hmm. of being focused on God. And but that's the biggest part of it, yeah. Uh, when I began the program, my talked about the title of your book, Chrysostom's Devil, Demons, the Will, and Virtue in Patristic Soteriology. 
and I stayed away from it purposely. But now, as we get towards the end of the program, I feel like we should at least say something about his soteriology and what that means. Yeah, soteriology is just our, our fancy theological word for the study of salvation and how how we understand how salvation happens for us, which is a very timely topic in Holy Week. And so Chrysostom, all of this that we've been talking about for him feeds into, it's all important because salvation is this cooperative thing where God has done, I had a Jesuit professor at Marquette who likes to say that God does all the work, but we still have to sweat. Mm. And and I think that's a great way of summing up what Chrysostom thinks about this as well. And so for, for our Catholic listeners, this is not going to sound radical. For, for I'm, a, I'm a Protestant, and the people in my world think this sounds very, very not like this. Is, it sounds like works righteousness, which they've been trained to like mm-hmm. hate. Um, but for Christianism, this is ver- salvation is about God has done all of this work in Christ. God has redeemed the world. God has has made the new creation and and has made us able to be virtuous again. And all of this. But we actually still have to be virtuous. We still have to bring, he says, our part. He talks about God's part and our part in salvation. And God has done all the heavy lifting. All the important stuff has done all the prior work. We still have to add something. And usually that something is uh, faith and or virtue, depending on what mm-hmm. sermon he's giving. And that's, it, you still have to, he talks about it in the image of, so in the fourth century, when you were baptized, you actually were, were baptized naked. And then when you come out, you are yeah. given a white baptismal garment to wear and he talks about it as well keeping your baptismal garment spotless that's that's what virtue is and that that's what makes us sort of using the parable of the wedding banquet and the man who's found in non-wedding clothes uh, in matthew's gospel this, this is mm-hmm. you need to keep your wedding garment your baptismal garment clean and spotless as your part the thing you're adding to your salvation tell us a little bit about the final chapter in his sermon about the place of human being in creation. You write uh, about a Chrysostom's focus throughout a homily is on the place of the human being in creation. According to Chrysostom, the fact that God created humans to rule over the rest of creation indicates that humans have the highest place in creation. Chrysostom further argues that being made in God's image refers to the control humans have over other created beings rather than being made in the physical form of God, as some would say. Yeah, he's talking in particular, he's arguing, and there were, there were people at the time who were arguing that being made in the image of God, as Genesis says, meant that God was then human in form, an anthropomorphic God. And and Christensen is saying, no, that's ridiculous. That's talking about these other traits. It's talking about the control that we have or the knowledge that we have or some of these other things. And so, yeah, for him, for Christensen, humans were created as the pinnacle of creation. They were the, the highest point, and they have been given creation to take care of and to control and to do as we need, not, there are plenty of other places. I don't want that to come out sounding like we can just do whatever we want with it because that he doesn't, there are other places where he he talks about needing to to care for the world, but, um, 
but yeah, that humans are the place that, I mean, we are the ones with the faculty of choice. If it, nothing, no other part of creation can, um, uh, animal or vegetable, mineral, et cetera, are, has that faculty of choice or that freedom. Humans have the freedom and, the, and therefore the moral, moral responsibility that, that we do. And uh, some of the uh, ideas that you pull out of that is let us not think too little of our salvation, uh, part of Chrysostom's uh, broader moralism, Nothing is as important as virtue, and boy, that's been a theme uh, throughout this program. Virtue snatches us out of Gehenna. How much stronger can you say it uh, than that, that that's what the effect is? In our present life, virtue establishes us as superior. Everything is is so positive and, and gets right to the core. Virtue is to despise all human things Virtue is to be just like a corpse. Say something like that. The other ones, I, I think, are self-evident. I'm not sure that that one is. Yeah, that's Chrysostom's. Everything you were just quoting is Chrysostom's homily right. on uh, a piece of Genesis, where he's talking about this, like, don't neglect your salvation. Don't think too little of it, because you have some—your virtue matters for salvation. It's not just because you should be good right now. Um, and so the to be like a corpse, he's talking about he's using Pauline language there, and he's to be like a corpse in regard to sin. Uh, corpses don't react to anything, and so he's saying you should you should not react to sin. And I can't remember now which which of Paul's mm-hmm. letters he's drawing on, but but that's Pauline language of being dead to uh, Romans six, um, being dead to sin. We we are now especially those who have been baptized, are dead to sin. We are, as corpses, we cannot react to it. And so yes. we shouldn't. And that's, that's the, the way that we need to be living as our virtue, as we're bringing this to our own salvation and caring enough about our own salvation to be virtuous. So the choice to not have that 16th piece of chocolate cake today <laughs> is not about even your physical health. It's about your salvation. Yes. Well, um, thank you very much for being with us. Um, you've uh, certainly enlightened us in, in many ways, and people didn't know it's your first interview. So uh, uh, you, you're a wonderful teacher, and you must be very great in your classroom, and the students must just love you. So again, thank you very much, and I hope that you and all your loved ones, uh, Easter will be a time of great blessing for you. Unfortunately, we're Hearing for the world, it's going to be a very difficult time, that it might be the height when more people will die than at any other time. And so I would go back to um, my original uh, thoughts as we began the program, how important prayer is. And prayer really can be helpful, can't it? Oh, yes. And Chrysostom believes strongly in the power of prayer himself. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, he encourages us to pray, and he he writes homilies on the Lord's Prayer, and um, yeah, I mean, prayer is prayer is. I mean, exorcisms are prayers, and so yes. prayers are what keep us in commun- in in communion and conversation with the one who is helping us in that arena as we struggle. Um, and as we suffer, who is who is with us in the struggle, God is our comfort. 
good thoughts to end with. Thank you so very much. And again, may you have a very blessed Easter. You as well. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye now. Um, so much to learn about uh, the power of evil as it uh, touches our lives in, in various ways, um, sometimes very simple ways of um, that little nudge, that little thought, um, that little desire that uh, leads us not uh, towards God, but, uh, but away from, from God. And um, it can happen without our being aware of it. That's what Chrysostom is saying. So many other people, modern uh, homeless preachers are saying that today also. We need to be so very careful about evil that exists all around us. It uh, is in the shadows sometimes. Sometimes it's very obvious, but I think it's, well, the obvious is there, the worst things are happening in the shadows, in the darkness. And so it's like um, taking our attention away from where we really need to be. And so what I'd like to do is uh, close the program with a prayer that uh, I pray every day because we believe that in the end, um, Michael, the archangel, will uh, end um, the life of Lucifer, the devil, Satan, whatever name we want to uh, be able to use. It's such a simple prayer, really. But as I said, as we need to pray for one another, and I would repeat what I said at the beginning, you have a lot of power. Pray for those who are engaged in this struggle, and they will feel it without knowing where it came from. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the heavenly hosts, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. So we're asking Michael, through the power of God, to be able to thrust into hell all those evil spirits who are out there in the world, some known to us, some unknown to us, and to overcome them by virtuous living, which was um, the whole theme of our program tonight. Overall, we need to live as God wants us to live. And there may be some questions how that is, but not usually. Don't forget then how precious life is and how powerful love is. Tell someone now that you love him or her. Pray for peace as if it depended on you alone. And come back next Sunday and amplify with us.